The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Thursday edition of PFTPM. We are four for four on the off week for PFT Live. And today we have a guest, unannounced. Wanted it to be a surprise. I don't know if any of you have been watching The Dynasty, the series about the New England Patriots on Apple TV+. Plus. If you recall, that gave me the idea for what I would do with the paperclip. I have no fresh paperclip ideas from anyone today. I think the paperclip talk is over. You got five minutes to hide a paperclip. Detective has 24 hours to find it. Go. You get $100,000 if you can't find it. My idea from the other day, put one paperclip in with 100000 and have it dipped in the specific dye that they put on Tom Brady's socks when they pranked him as a rookie. And then after the detective gives up, you spray them with water and you find the one that has the pink or purple dye or whatever it was. Anyway, no more. As I say, no more paperclip talk. You get more paperclip talk. All right. Let's get to it because Matthew Hamachek, if I didn't already say it, the director and executive producer of the Dynasty, joined me earlier. It's about a half hour and it's worth your time. It's a great look at how this Dynasty series was put together. If you haven't seen it, you need to. The first two episodes are available on Apple TV Plus. I think they're dropping two a week. They gave me access to all of them. I don't want to see any of them in advance. I don't want to be trusted with secrets. I'll watch them as they come out, and I look forward to each of them. I've enjoyed the first two, and I have a feeling I'll enjoy them all, and you will enjoy the interview coming up momentarily. For now, though, just a couple of topics to get to. One, yesterday, got an email from the NFL Players Association with the master list of draft picks and agents, and I've been waiting to get it because I might have mentioned this on PFT Live. I never really heard who Caleb Williams, the presumptive number one overall pick, is being represented by. Who's his agent? And I was starting to feel bad that I didn't know because, you know, like I cover the sport. I'm supposed to know these things. And the first thing I did, clicked the list, scrolled down, a lot of Williamses, and they're alphabetical, kind of. But I'm like, where's Caleb? Where's Caleb? And I checked it, and I checked it again, and I checked it again, and there's no Caleb Williams on the list of incoming players and agents. Texted a couple people I know. Yeah, he hasn't hired an agent. And he doesn't plan to. Now, look, I really don't care whether or not a player has an agent or not. There's this narrative out there because, of course, when I criticize people like Richard Sherman for thinking they could do a better deal on their own, all to save 3% of a smaller pie than what an agent, a good agent, would have gotten them, oh, you're just in bed with the agents. You're trying to cater. I don't give a shit, folks, okay? I'm just trying to share my own unvarnished view of what I think is smart for people to do. If you want to represent yourself, have at it. Just understand there are pluses and there are minuses. There are risks and there are rewards. And guys like Bobby Wagner have done an excellent job of representing himself. Lamar Jackson last year got a great contract from the Ravens. Now, if he had an agent, 
working the channels to maybe get somebody to make him a significant offer when he was franchise tagged by the Ravens. And if the Ravens had matched it, maybe he would have gotten a better deal. Regardless, represented himself and he's happy. If you want to do it, that's fine. That's fine. Most guys have an agent. Some guys don't. Caleb Williams won't. Here's the one thing, though, that we need to keep in mind. And we have said this in the past about Lamar Jackson, who's never had an agent. Think back to 2018. Think about all that crap that was being said. Bill Paulian, he should play receiver or running back or whatever it was, something other than quarterback. When you have an agent, and when somebody says something misguided like that, the agent gets in touch with that person. And the agent's job at that point is to try to get the person to come around to a different way of thinking and maybe go back and soften the criticism or see it a different way. And I've dealt with agents for the past 23 years, the good ones, especially pre-draft, because, look, at this point, once the guy's drafted, the contract negotiates itself. So that's a reason not to have an agent. Wherever I'm drafted, I'm going to get that contract. It's the same every year. It goes up a little bit for inflation or whatever, but it's the same deal. So I don't need an agent to negotiate that. And you're right, but you need an agent to make sure you get drafted as high as possible. And you think about all the quarterbacks in this draft, the great quarterbacks, the top three, Caleb Williams, Drake, May, and Jaden Daniels. May and Daniels have agents. And I guarantee you that there will be an effort by those agents to get their clients drafted before Caleb Williams. And they might fight fair. They may not fight fair. Quite possibly all's fair in love, war, and how high you get drafted. And I think that hurt Lamar Jackson six years ago. He fell all the way to 32. He landed 22 spots behind Josh freaking Rosen, who did nothing in the NFL, who got dumped a year later for Kyler Murray. You need to have somebody. And it doesn't have to be an agent, but it has to be somebody who is plugged in both with the media and with the teams because you need to counter whatever bullcrap other agents will be feeding to the decision makers or leaking to the media. We still don't know who was putting out the stuff about C.J. Stroud last year. Some people think it was other teams that wanted C.J. Stroud to fall to them. Some people think it was agents who were trying to get their guy drafted higher than C.J. Stroud. Some people think it was the Panthers who were trying to justify their faith in Bryce Young over C.J. Stroud. Whatever the case may be, you need somebody who is ready to fight fire with fire or at a minimum just put the fire out. That's the risk that Caleb Williams is taking. And maybe he's so good it doesn't matter. Maybe he's going to be the number one overall pick no matter what anyone tries to do. But there's still something to be said for having someone who is there with you, arm in arm, fighting the fight, making the calls, talking to the people, getting tough when you have to, sharing statistics when necessary, rebutting any and all arguments that maybe you shouldn't be drafted in the spot that a team is thinking about drafting you. And people think, well, does it matter? The teams have their opinions anyway. Here's where it matters. When something becomes a narrative, when something takes root within the overall public consciousness as it relates to the coverage of the game, that's when the owners start to get nervous. 
Because the teams do have access to all the information. The teams all knew that C.J. Stroud didn't do well on the S2 test. It's one thing for the teams to only know it. It's another thing for everyone to know it, and then you draft the guy despite that, and it doesn't work out, and your team looks bad for not seeing the handwriting on the wall, for ignoring the signs that maybe the guy wasn't going to play well. So that's why this game happens. And my point is, you need somebody who serves as your advocate. While you're getting ready for your NFL career, you need somebody who is monitoring, talking, and pushing back against any crap that someone might be trying to throw at you to try to get you to fall farther down the draft order. All right. I wrote something earlier today, and I, I look, I just I don't want to see these kids get exploited. The kids that play college football are already exploited by the system. The system's inherently corrupt, and it has been for decades. For decades. College football, I think, has been delaying the reckoning that they knew was coming eventually. I think it's amazing it took as long as it did. The antitrust laws ultimately are the weapon that will blow up the college football model, and it's in the process as kind of a slow-motion implosion. The NIL is the first step. At some point, they're going to have to pay these kids. The NCAA is just cover for widespread antitrust violations where these schools band together. They don't truly compete for the services of the players. They limit what they can give them so we don't have a bidding war and we don't have teams get priced out of the market while we're seeing it happen with NIL. NIL, that's the opening for EA Sports to come back and put its very popular college football video game on the market. Sports Business Journal reported today that EA is going to offer $600 each to 11,000 players, the 85 scholarship players on the various NCAA Division I programs, 134 I think there are right now. I did the math. It's a $6.6 million budget to have the names, the images, and the likenesses of the players that they can no longer rip off by just using the number or just using very vague general things so we know who the guy is, but it's officially not him. I just think 600 isn't close to what the value is to the player. And you're going to have a lot of players who are just happy to be in the game. They're happy to get the $600. They don't realize you got to pay taxes on it. They don't stop and think that $600 really doesn't buy all that much. Is it a fair transaction? And this is where it hurts the players to not have a union to not have a collective group that can stand up to the NCAA and or EA and say, sorry, sorry, that doesn't do it. You're not getting the rights to all these players under our group licensing program for $600 per person. It just doesn't cut it. It'll be interesting to see what happens because I think what will occur is a lot of guys will just take that 600 plus a free copy of the game and run. And there'll be pressure on them by their friends Family, fans, you don't want to be the one that keeps the game from being realistic. You don't want to stand out like a sore thumb. Remember when LeVar Arrington refused to be part of the EA Sports Madden series and it was just linebacker 56? He didn't want to be part of it. And they still made it clear it was him, which might have been another issue entirely. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the guy that undermines the enjoyment that fans supposedly are going to have now that it's in the game, it's in the game, and all that stuff. So I just, look, I mean, I'd like to think that somebody at EA has enough of a conscience that they realize $600. 
kind of screwing the kids. And yeah, they're probably going to take it. And they're adults. They've got the right to take it. They're old enough to to vote. They're old enough to join the armed services they want to. It doesn't mean you should screw them, does it, EA? Somebody there, some executive who supposedly has a title that would suggest they're responsible for, you know, not being an asshole. $600 is kind of an asshole offer, in my opinion. I would reject it. But then again, I'm not 20 years old and thinking about how much pizza I could buy for 600 bucks, And I get a free copy of the game. All right, last topic. I wrote about this this morning. The Dak Prescott contract. We need to understand how much power Dak Prescott has over the Cowboys. $59.4 million cap charge this year. In a year where Jerry Jones, the owner of the team, has already said he's going all in. It's kind of hard to go all in. Kind of hard to push the chips into the middle of the table when you got one hand tied behind your back because of the Dak Prescott contract. And the Dallas Morning News suggested and maybe somebody there heard this from the Cowboys. They're just going to do a simple restructuring, knock the cap number down to $40.9 million for Dak this year, which is a lot easier to manage. We don't need to do an extension. Well, you still need to do one in the next 12 months because there's still over $95 million. Without an extension, $95 million is going to count over the next two years. The question is, how do you load it up? And it's going to be... $55 million next year and nearly $41 million this year if they do a simple restructuring. And maybe the cap's going to keep going up and up and up, and maybe they can find a way to make it work where Dak would leave in free agency and they would have $55 million in cap charges for him in 2025, even though he's not on the team. $55 million. They need to do an extension with him. And... As I've said before, this is exactly the kind of situation where Jerry Jones, if he had that leverage, would get every penny he could from the person against whom he holds that leverage. What will Dak do? And will at some point the Cowboys say, screw it, we'll deal with it, and we'll move on from Dak Prescott come 2025? They need to get an extension in place now to kind of put this to rest, but there's a chance they do the simple restructuring, knock the cap charge down to 40, and then make a decision next year. But the or else, if they don't extend Dak next year, is a $55 million cap charge. All right, as promised, here is my conversation from earlier today with the director and executive producer of The Dynasty on Apple TV Plus, Matthew Hamachek. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. 
With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Joining us now, the director and executive producer of the excellent series, The Dynasty, on Apple Plus TV, that focuses very, very closely on the New England Patriots of the 2000s and the following decade, Matthew Hamachek. Matthew, welcome to the program. It's great to talk to you. And the fact that we had some technical difficulties allowed us to talk a little bit before we got rolling. I probably enjoy that more than I'll enjoy the interview, although it's up to me to make sure that we both enjoy the interview. Good morning and hello. Yeah. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Somehow uh, a Packer fan and a Viking fan have found themselves sitting here talking about the New England Patriots. Yeah, that's right. I've done some research on you and I know that you're a Packers fan. So before we get into any of the Patriots stuff, I want to know, who do you blame for the fact (laughs) that the Packers only made it to one Super Bowl during all the years they had access to Aaron Rodgers? You got to blame one person. Who do you blame? One person. Um, you know, I'm going I'm, I'm to, I'm, I'm, I'm on my feet. I'm trying to think of what the most diplomatic way to answer that question, because I don't think I can tell you who the <laughs> one person is. Uh, all I know is this. You look at what Brian Gutekunst has done with that team in one year to turn it around. I know that there's plenty of Bear fans that, uh, that I am good friends with who are devastated by the fact that the rebuild year turned into a playoff run and uh, getting all the way to the divisional round. So all I know is things are looking bright for the Packers right now. Oh, absolutely. And that was very diplomatic and tactful. On there we go. There we go. Let's there we see. Go. Let's see. Hey, it was one Super Bowl with Favre, one victory, one victory, one appearance with Rodgers. We'll see what they can do with Jordan Love. But already people thinking ahead to next year are starting to circle the Packers as a team that, that may get back. And if that if, – if they're – Last year wasn't an aberration. Get used to the Packers still being a, a, a contender and a, a serious threat to get to the Super Bowl every year. All right, let's talk about the team that was a serious threat to get to the Super Bowl Sounds every good. year, it seems like, from 2001 through 2019, the New England Patriots. What was the, the moment, the, the light? I, we were talking before about what's next for you. What was the thing that made you say, this is what I need to do? Well, I had been working on uh, a, a doc series about Tiger Woods for HBO in 2019 to 2021. And uh, that, that doc series had been uh, inspired by a book that had been written by Jeff Benedict. And Jeff Benedict had written the book that is the inspiration for this. And he basically said, would you be interested in this? And I wasn't a fan of the team uh, and really didn't know much about them. But I thought that the idea of a, of a series about the New England Patriots, if it could be done in a way that really got into the, got into the characters, got into something beyond the X's and O's and the hoisting of Lombardi trophies, was what could make this thing interesting. And the other part of it was a chance to talk to the 70 like, you know, players, the coaches, 
the front office folks, the league officials and the rivals and just saying, okay, you know, as I started to do more research, it, it, what became clear is that there had been, like Halberstam had written this incredible book called Ed Education of a Coach in 0405 about the first part of the dynasty, about Belichick, and Tom had had his doc series. And there was always these like very, very specific lenses through which the story had been told in the past. But what if we get everybody together? They're all on the record. This is not the anonymous sources, articles that people have read. You can sit back and let these people tell their stories and maybe we can get to the thing that people like me who didn't grow up Patriots fans are actually interested in, which is sort of the unvarnished telling of this story where you get into things like Spygate and Deflategate and Hernandez and, um, you know, really talk about how something's created by people and then also talk about how it comes to an end. How different is the docu-series from the book? Well, I think the biggest difference is basically the first five chapters of the book are really about Robert Kraft's backstory and, and his life. And we sort of condense all of that into a two-minute pod in the third episode. So the biggest I think that's the biggest difference between the book and the, the series. And then beyond that, I think it's just having everybody on the record is very different than, you know, reading about something unfolding in the book because you can look at a person's face and you can see what they're, how they are processing information. And there's sort of no better example of that than Tom and Bill in this ep in the series, right? You get to really look at them. And I think one of the things that people will see, especially in the back half of the, the series is that Tom is vulnerable in a way that I don't think you've really ever seen him before. Cause I've now combed through we had access to like 35,000 hours of archive. And I've seen almost all of his interviews that he's done, whether it was for the Patriots, whether it was with NFL films. And um, I think we just, we got him in a place where he was reflective, but also really willing to go back to what it was like to be in the room when all of this stuff was happening. And so, you know, that's to me the best part about making a documentary is that, you know, you really get to talk to these people and let them tell their stories. One of the reasons I jumped at the chance to do this, Matthew, is as my wife and I were watching the first episode the other night, she blurted out halfway through it. How did they get all these people to do this? So my question to you is crafted by my wife. How did you get all those people to do it? It was you know, so it's interesting, the the Tiger thing that I talked to you about was, in a lot of ways, the opposite, because I didn't have Tiger, I didn't have his inner circle. But the, the process of getting people to sit down and do interviews is basically the same thing, right? You go to them, and you call people up, and you say, hey, I'm making this thing. And I view my role as to get out of the way in a lot of ways and to let you tell your story. And then some people immediately say yes. And then some people basically take a lot of time and, you know, in some cases a year of talking things through and asking questions and trying to figure out what kind of a story you're telling. And one of the things that I tell people all the time is that you're going to be, you're, you know, and if somebody says, well, how am I going to be portrayed? Well, what I always like to say is you're going to be somewhere between the puff piece version of the way you see yourself and the version of yourself that somebody that doesn't necessarily like you all that much sees you. And in the middle is often where the truth is of what a person is like. 
And so um, I talked to all these people and eventually everybody decided that they were interested in sort of being part of this. And some people were immediate and some people took a year and a half to convince. In the aftermath of the finalization, and I assume that the folks who submitted to the the interviews have either seen it or heard about it. What kind of feedback have you gotten, good or bad? And I'm more interested in bad. I mean, have you had anybody give <laughs> you a hard time about how they ultimately believe they were portrayed in this? Well, the first two episodes are out now. So, you know, no, I think by and large, I think everybody feels like they got to tell their story, right? And so that's sort of what... I don't know. That's that's what I told them it would be like. And I think that when they watched it, that's what they've sort of seen. And, you know, one of the people that was took so long to get in the chair that I really wanted was Adam Vinatieri from because I think that he has two roles in this. One is that obviously he was involved in some of these incredible moments where, you know, he kicks the the game tying and game winning field goal in the snow the snow game. I think some people would argue that that's the greatest kick in NFL history. But then also has obviously two more Super Bowl winning kicks in um, in the episodes that are about to come up. And I think the thing for Adam was that I think he gets asked to do all this stuff all the time. And so he had two things. One was, is this actually going to be the unvarnished telling of the story? Are you really going to get into things like Spygate, Deflategate? Um, because for him, he was with the Patriots for a while, but then he went to the Colts. And so his perspective as, a, as the kicker for the Colts is very different than his perspective when he was with the Patriots. And then the other thing that was really important for him was, you know, are you going to get Robert, Tom, and Bill? And is this going to be them plus all the other guys and have it really be the Patriots rather than Tom's story, Bill's story, or Robert's story? And so that kind of conversation happened with a lot of people and took time. Uh, but so far, everybody's, you know, loves what they've seen. It's an interesting point because he left for the Patriots after 2005. He was with the Colts through Spygate. He was with the Colts in Deflategate, which the Colts instigated. I don't want you to disclose spoilers. That's not my goal. And I had the opportunity to watch all the episodes in advance. I didn't want to do it because I can't be trusted with that information. But you got my interest now. Do do we have Vinatieri chiming in on his perspective of the cheating allegations, whichever cheating allegations they might be? Yes. The answer is yes. That was wow. one of the things that I, oh, I talked wow. to Adam, Adam about before I came out to film with him in his house in, in Indiana, Indianapolis was that I just want you to know, like, that's one of the things I want to talk to you about is talking about what it was like to be on the Colts. How did the team view the Patriots at the time? And, I, you know, we have to be able to get into that. And to Adam's credit, he was like, heck yeah, let's go for it. So yes, uh, he gives the perspective wow. that the Colts had at the AFC wow. championship game uh, in the 2014-15 season. So yeah, and we go and you know, we have an entire episode about Deflategate. And I think the thing that's interesting about that moment is, and Jackie McMullen, great journalist, uh, says this, she sort of says, you know, did, did it happen? Maybe it did, probably it did, but what the heck is that going on right now? And and what she means by that is, I remember finding this piece of archival footage uh, from one of the national morning shows, and the 
the the main um, uh, pundit or you know host of the show goes. So we lead our day today with the, the ongoing Deflategate scandal, and then you know talks about wherever they are in the court system at that point in time, and then he goes. And in other news, ISIS has beheaded a hostage, and and it's like the what what's going on with ISIS has somehow become the secondary news in our country because we all got wrapped up in this story and obsessed over it. And um, one of the things that Michael Strahan said when I was interviewing him for this, because obviously he and the New York Giants are the two, you know, the the team that has you know provided the greatest challenge for the Patriots. We were talking about the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, and there's a line in one of those movies where uh, the character says, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And the way that that applies to the Patriots is fans like you and me who have our our team that we root for, uh, oftentimes uh, our team sort of die a hero. They may get to one Super Bowl every every 20 years, and that's it, and then nobody sees them back there again but the patriots kept winning and winning and winning and when you do that enough you become the evil empire and then when things like spygate happens that's when you know you go from just the person that people are sick of winning to embodying that that like i said the moniker of the sort of the evil empire and um it's it's one thing to hear people talk about that. But one of the things that we had was access to all of this footage. Um, I think when, when you, I think one of our um, post supervisors put it, put it together and they found out that if you filled up two, two Mac trucks with tapes, that's how much uh, archival footage we got um, for this. Wow. And we, you know, have, we're in the locker room when Bill is addressing the team about the Spygate scandal. And then you're in the locker room when the team starts to win and go on that undefeated season. We And an editor that was working on the project, who is an actual diehard Patriot fan, he sort of said, it's like you're watching um, you're, you're watching the, the evil empire on the Death Star going from planet to planet, destroying everybody in their path. But instead of it's sort of being this somber thing. They're having a party while they're doing it. And Brewski's has like a music playing and they're, they're listening to another one bites the dust as they beat the Cowboys and they beat the Colts and they sort of beat everybody that they could possibly run into until they get to the Super Bowl that year. So I followed and covered Spygate very carefully and we know what happened there. They went on the great run, as you said, deflate gate, same idea. They come back and win the Super Bowl and Tom Brady unlocks a higher level of achievement with fully and properly inflated footballs in between though. And again, mm-hmm. I haven't seen all these. I don't know if this is going to be part of it. Spygate two, the scandal that broke on the Friday before Super Bowl 42. How much of that makes its way into the dynasty? Oh. Because I know there are some people who believe they won't say it because they don't want to be perceived as making excuses. And maybe they say it in this that that thing happening when it did and the way the league came down on them when they did just before Super Bowl 42 is one of the reasons why they lost that game to the Giants and didn't go 19-0. and you're, you're referring to the accusations that they filmed the walkthrough of the Rams in 2001, which came out basically the night before they played the Giants in the 2007-2008 season. And the answer is yes, we go into yes. that. And it was a story that broke in the Boston Herald. Uh, and... Um, it, it yes, the answer is yes, and it airs this Friday, um, uh, and is um, is a fascinating story because I think that 
it just added to the way that the country felt about the Patriots, right? It was enough that they had already been caught from Spygate against the Jets at the beginning of that season. But then even though the the accusations were ultimately proven to be false and the Boston Herald ran a retraction, it, it still made it feel like um, we were all collectively Giants fans at that, in that Super Bowl in the country and everybody was sort of rooting for the big bad Patriots to finally sort of meet their match. And, and, um, and so I think that, again, you know, the thing that I really love about these stories is how you can sort of occasionally turn a mirror back on the audience. And I think one of the things we, we really go into in both the Spygate and Deflategate stories is what it said about the rest of the country and how they viewed the Patriots and what they were hoping for um, in these big games. And, and so it's, it's not only a story about the characters in the building, but it's also a story about sort of us and, and how we viewed this team over time. I'll still hear quotes from time to time from guys like Marshall Falk and Kurt Warner who still believe, still believe, despite the fact that the Herald retracted it and the league did nothing about it, they still believe to this day that something fishy happened in advance of Super Bowl 36. And I see that you have Mike Martz on your list of people that you interviewed, so can't wait to see episode three for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is what's said about what we've been calling over the years Spygate 2. I've got so many other questions I can ask, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. What's the best thing that ended up on the cutting room floor? Oh, my gosh. Um, We interviewed so many people that just didn't, like, I I mean, I, I got to talk to Rodney Harrison one of the one of the greatest greatest defensive players of all time, and he has probably two two sound bites in the in the whole series. It, you know that entire interview was just incredible, but it just didn't fit into the story that we were telling because once they get to Super Bowl thirty six and win, I I'll never forget. I was sitting there and I was talking to Scott Pioli, who was at the time the vice president of player personnel for the Patriots in in the story, but now uh, is obviously working in media. And he told me this great story about how after the third Super Bowl in four years, he's standing there and he starts to think about the idea of an addiction to winning and what it makes you do, what you have to give up and how you're constantly trying to find a way to continue to win. And what it made me realize was that once they get to the top in Super Bowl 36, that the next two are very, very similar. And, and to spend the time to go and say, okay, well, they get to Super Bowl 36, they win that. Then in the 2002 season, they, you know, they don't make the playoffs. And then the next year they cut lawyer Malloy and they bring in Rodney and then they win again. And then they win again the year after that. And I could have detailed all the AFC championship games and there's just incredible stuff there, but it's not, that, that if you're doing it that way and this sort of very linear and then this happened and this happened, this happened, then you're just sort of like you're a collector of facts and that's not really storytelling. And so when Scott talked about that and talked about this idea of the addiction to winning and, and all of that, it felt like the right place to then pivot to the idea of Spygate. And because I think Spygate is part of that conversation about what you will do in order to win. And so we, we didn't spend as much time on those second two Super Bowls and go right into that 2007 season. And then the second that that season's over and they lose to the Giants, that's when Tom 
go the next regular season game plays against the the Kansas City Chiefs and has this horrific knee injury and I think that that really sets the tension for the rest of the series because Tom's out he is facing his football mortality for the first time in his life and he realizes it in that moment from what he tells us is that the show goes on without him and one of the things that Belichick does so well and his sort of superpower is is that he takes whatever he has and he makes the absolute most of it. That year it was Matt Castle. Um, and so while Tom's away, he says, how do I not break? How do I never get to the operating room table again? And sort of that's the beginning of this idea of I'm going to play till 45. And then at the same time, you have Bill Belichick, who has this sort of irrefutable proof that at a certain point, all quarterbacks fall off of a cliff. And so you have a guy who's like, I'm going to play till 45. And a guy who says, I need to find a, a replacement for you because it's a fact. I'm seeing it in front of me. And that's the beginning of the tension. And then all of these things that are sort of the foundation of this perfect machine of the Patriots of selflessness and team first and the Patriot way, um, which is a lot about sort of subjugating your ego. Uh, some of that stuff that they kept at bay for 15 plus years starts to creep its way into Patriot place. And um, that's sort of what the last three uh, episodes are really about. And Matthew, what's amazing is as somebody who has covered the NFL every day for the last 23 years, so much of what's happened throughout that run of greatness the Patriots had helps him form the different things that ha happen now, whether it's something similar or something different. I'll give you two of them, and then I'll let you go, because I know you got more important things to do than listen to me prattle on all day. But first, all right, all right. when Tom Brady suffered that knee injury against the Chiefs, Bernard Pollard comes in low, comes in hot, tears the ACL, Tom Brady disappeared. Tom Brady mm -hmm. was gone. We never heard from Tom Brady again that year. Contrast that with Aaron Rodgers this past year. Week <laughs> one, he suffers the torn Achilles tendon, and we hear as much from Aaron Rodgers, if not more from Aaron Rodgers, throughout the entire year. I'm not making a judgment. I'm not saying what's right or wrong. It just really is as stark of a difference as you can imagine. And it made me think of Brady. Like, this guy keeps talking and talking and talking. Brady was just gone. And the game did move on without him. And it's almost like he understood that's how it worked. And maybe Rodgers' mindset is, I really don't want it to move on without me. I think that that's one of the things that you'll notice about Tom throughout the entire series, which is that he really did buy into the culture that was created there. It was something that him and Bill did together with Robert. And, you know, one of the things that the people talk about later is that part of that culture was that at the beginning of every season, they would sort of have throughout the season, they'd have these low light sessions. And the first person that Bill would talk about a lot of the times was Tom. And Tom, I think, for a long time knew that by taking some of that and having it be said in front of other people, it created that feeling of, well, if a rookie's watching this and they're saying, I mean, Matthew Slater says it, he says that, you know, but that's Tom Brady. And he's one at the point in time that, that Matthew Slater's talking about it's, it's, he Tom's a four-time Super Bowl champion. And if he can say that about Tom, then he can say it about all of us. And that's the part of that selfless culture of not being out there. You know, it's one of the things that Bill always talked about. And you see him saying it to them in the locker room is nobody wants to hear from you guys. You know, keep your mouth shut and, and, and just, you know, play the game. And like I said, the, the series is as much about 
the creation of this perfect machine and them sustaining it for a really long time until eventually there were starting to be cracks. And that's like what we start to watch and um, detail in those last three episodes. We once had Terrence Porkchop Knighton on our morning show, and he told the story of how he was asked by a reporter during training camp about how one of his teammates was doing, and he praised the teammate. And Belichick destroyed him for it because it's not your job to talk about anything but your job. And Mm -hmm. there was a moment in the second episode where I thought of that because they asked Tom Brady after one of the games how he played, and he said, you need to talk to the coach about that. And it just it's that message of you never say anything about anything. That's not your job. That's my job. Yeah, and I think that um, one of the things that I thought was really important in this is that you, ha- as we're detailing the unraveling of this whole thing, you really have to make sure that you understand everybody's perspective. You may disagree with some of the decisions that the people made, you, but like, let's say you you look at what Tom Brady did. There's a, there was a there was sort of a point where uh, after the Falcon Super Bowl, somebody talks about how Tom maybe was a little bit less team focused than he had been in the past and was starting to grow his his business and things like that. I want to make sure that people can watch that that episode and say, well, I don't necessarily agree with him, but I completely see why he did that. I understand what winning that Super Bowl and coming back from 28 to three does to a person who for their entire life has been willing to subjugate their ego and sort of make themselves equal to a a rookie that's coming in. At the same time, I want people to be able to look at Bill and the decisions he made and say, hmm, there were things that Bill did that I might not agree with, but I completely understand. And I think the best stories are when you can watch the characters and say, say those things and sort of understand where they're coming from and why they're making the choices that they're doing um, and sort of avoid the idea of, um, you know, building up a straw straw man just to sort of kick them over. And uh, I hope that when people watch those later episodes, that's what they feel. I got one more topic I want to address with you because I thought of this one when I was at the Super Bowl 11 days ago. Travis Kelsey accosts Andy Reid on the sideline, yells at him, bumps into him. Reid just lets it go, doesn't bench him, doesn't punish him, doesn't do anything that would get in the way of the broader goal of winning the Super Bowl with the assistance of Travis Kelsey. Exactly, exactly. Because apparently you finally got the answer to why what I believe Bill Belichick did cut off his nose to spite his face, sent a message to Malcolm Butler at a time when maybe a play or two from Malcolm Butler is the difference in a game that ends up being a shootout. I think that what you see in that episode is um, what's so great about the Patriot system, the, the, the Patriot way, is that like I said, they've kept this thing at bay for a very long time, but I think there's a level of mental exhaustion that also comes into play because of how rigid the system is and the culture is and everything. When you win at the end of the year and you're ho- hoisting the Lombardi trophy over your head, all of it's worth it. But what happens when the players feel as if a decision has been made that may have cost them that, but they still had to go through a really, really tough year. And yes, 
we we ask everybody basically, and you see me do this, what happened with Malcolm Butler? And one person gives an answer that I think gives you a much bigger clue as to what happened. But I think the important thing there is that you also see the team sort of unraveling a bit. And one of the journalists who was actually in the locker room with the Patriots afterwards, half jokingly, but half seriously says that it felt almost like there was a mutiny beginning to form after that Super Bowl was over. And so, you know, there were uh, so many different moments where I was sitting and asking these questions and my sort of my jaw was on the floor and hearing the players talk about what it felt like in that locker room afterwards was certainly one of them. Last one for you. I hate to say that because I have a bad habit of making that commitment, not honoring it, but I'm going to try. Last one. Yeah. Given what you learned over the period of time that you directed the dynasty and all the interviews, everything you watched, everything you felt, everything you amassed, scale of one to 10, how surprised were you when after this past season concluded it ended between Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft? Well, that's a great question. I think that when you watch the series, the answer is I was shocked. I think, I think, um, you know, Bill's obviously the, the the greatest coach of all time, if not one of, you know, whatever category you want to put him in. Um, but I think that when you watch the series, you'll see the breadcrumbs of the reasons why everything in the building is sort of the way that it is now. And you really get an insight in the 10th episode in a lot of ways to what was going through Robert's mind as Robert Kraft's mind as uh, you know, he's sort of trying to deal with the fact that that Eagle Super Bowl really affected not only the team, but really affected Tom. And I think there's this realization of at some point in time, everybody's not going to be able to be together and what can he do or not do as an owner to affect how that plays itself out but the thing that was really remarkable to me in talking to him about that was he was deeply convinced that there was a way to make sure that they stayed together, even towards the end of everything. And that was always his desire because in his mind, it was pretty simple. It's I've got the greatest coach and the greatest player in the history of this game. I will do anything to make sure that they're together as long as humanly possible and, you know, he details how in a lot of ways he turned the thing over for most of those 20 years to build to make all of those football decisions. But in that last episode talks about how basically for the first time in 20 years, he stepped in and tried to make sure that they stayed together as much as possible. And um, having insight into that kind of the way he was thinking and the way he was trying to manage that situation is also fascinating. It sounds like that Eagles Super Bowl loss really was pivotal, and it's not surprising. We had that game on NBC, Matthew, and I remember walking into U.S. Bank Stadium for our rehearsals, and I looked up, and they had these huge banners of the quarterbacks, and you see Tom Brady, and you see Nick Foles. And my first thought was, what the hell are we doing here? Like, why are they even playing this game? Tom Brady versus Nick Foles, are you kidding me? Which made the outcome even more stunning, especially when, like I said, the feeling was you use Malcolm Butler, a play here, a play there, and the Patriots end up with more points than the Eagles in that game that ended up being a shootout. All right, this was excellent. I appreciate 
You've given me so much time. I appreciate the work you've done. This series has been great so far. I can't wait to see what's next. And I can't wait to see what's next from you. I think you really are gifted at what you do. You do a great job of telling stories based on real life events, uncovering stones that we didn't even know had anything under them. And I know it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of effort. It takes a huge commitment. I appreciate what you do and I appreciate some of your time. And again, we look forward to seeing the rest of the dynasty. And it takes a great team. I worked with 56 people on this thing that, uh, you know, all spent so much time away from their families and giving up so much. So kudos to them, too, for everything that they gave for this. Well, appreciate that very much. And we hope to talk to you again down the road. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. All right, thanks again to Matthew Hamachek. Now it's time for the best of your questions on this Thursday edition of PFTPM. And I'm only going to answer the best because of a feeling we've already gone on for nearly an hour here. Okay. PFTPM Posse is your self-service currently down too. If today was your regularly scheduled day to leave the house and run errands and your self-service is down, would you postpone your errand day? My self-service isn't down. If my self-service was not working... I probably wouldn't leave the house. Think of the fact that as a species, we survived for thousands of years without this thing that we no longer can survive without for more than a few seconds. My wife misplaces her phone around the house all the time. I never do because I feel like I have to have it in my hand or in my field of vision wherever I am. And see, I got the PFT sticker on the back. This thing has been a lifesaver. The PFT sticker, do I have it upside down? I do. Whoop, here we go. The PFT sticker is great because when you put the phone face down, it tends to blend in with the scenery. It's hard to find it. That sticker sticks out like a sore thumb. So I always know where my phone is. I don't think I would leave my hand or my home without my cell phone in my hand. All right. PFT PM Posse, I was rewatching the Bill Belichick of football life, and he said, I don't want to be like Marv Levy and still be coaching in my 70s, yet he's 71 and taking at least one year off before resuming his coaching career all over again with a brand new team. I, look, I, I think it's very easy to say 
I don't want to coach when I'm 70. And then you get to 70 and you're like, what the hell am I going to do? It's all he's done for 50 years. Stats. Guerrero. Remember Stats? Used to produce PFT Live. His mother says 80 and out. She wants to get to 80 and then she's happy to die. And you know what? I kind of like that thought too. I really don't want to get like, I mean, I'm, look at how grump I am now and I'm 22 years away from 80. I'll be a lot worse then. 80 and out. Sounds good. Sounds good at 58. I don't know how it's going to sound at 79 and 364 days. So, yeah, it's easy to write that check, number one, when you never really do have to cash it. And number two, you're going to feel differently when you get to that age that at the time you're saying it seems incomprehensible. But the reality is we're all going to get to that age if we're lucky. Best food you ate in Vegas? That's the last question today posed by our good friend Bobby, a.k.a. PFTPM Posse. There was a place we went to a couple of nights. Went Monday night and then decided to go back Thursday night. Took the PFT writers there. All four. Now, the steaks were really good, but they had a really good pork belly appetizer. It had an oyster on it, of all things. But the pork belly was incredible and they also had these little mini lobster rolls that were really good so a couple of really good appetizers i also had a great new york strip at the hotel that we stayed at for the weekend we were at mandalay bay all week long we moved to a different hotel at the end of the week where there was no casino it smelled like heaven inside we decided to just chill on saturday night we got room service i got a new york strip that was pre-cut like mom came in and cut it all up for me but it was just sliced perfectly it was so freaking good it was uh, I'm just getting hungry thinking about that. All right, Patrick Mullen, more important questions. The Dolphins are $52 million over the cap and went all in with an F-Dem picks mode to ingloriously get knocked out of the playoffs in round one. If they stagnate or regress this year, are the GM, Chris Greer, and head coach Mike McDaniel on the hot seat? Well, the one thing we never know about the hot seat is the temperament of the person who controls the flame. What's the owner going to do? And one of the problems with being competitive but not a high-end contender is you may get an owner who thinks, and I could do better. We have flaws that aren't being addressed. We have a coach who's taking us to solid regular season, playoff contention. We get in and we go one and out. Now, Tyree Kill has already said no excuses this year. 2022, it was, two was hurt. 2023, it was, we stepped into the open-air meat freezer in Kansas City. No excuses this year, but there very well could be some other excuse. But the reality is, whatever the other excuse is, it can't be an excuse. They have to find a way through it. And that's really the question. How many years of, hey, we had a great regular season and we lost in the wild-card round of the playoffs will be too many years for the liking of owner Stephen Ross, who is getting into his 80s and at some point many of these owners are inclined I think to approach things the way Leon Hess once did remember when Leon Hess fired I think it was Pete Carroll Leon Hess knew he only had so many spins left around the globe or around the sun the globe around the sun I don't know something like that I'm no astronomy expert but the world is round I'll at least agree to that which for some reason is at times in debate but As you're getting closer and closer to the end, sometimes you're willing to do desperate things. And if Stephen Ross just decides, you know, I really like this guy, Mike McDaniel, and he's got a quirky personality, he's very authentic, but he's just not getting us to where we need to be, 
That's for the owner to decide. Remember, everybody in the organization can be fired except the owner. If anybody were to be fired in Miami over the past 10 years who hasn't been, it would be the owner. But sorry, Dolphins fans, you're stuck with the guy who refuses. Dan Marino told us this two weeks ago. Stephen Ross refuses to go back to the uniforms that everybody wants. Everybody in the world could want the throwback uniforms as long as the owner wants the ones that he designed, or at least were designed on his watch, those stay. As long as he wants the coach in place, the coach stays. The moment he wants to make a change, the change is made, regardless of what anyone else thinks. Donald Kokersberger, who would you rather have as your quarterback for Antargan and Eli Manning? Both played for the Giants, by the way, and both were not originally drafted by the Giants. Eli originally drafted by the Chargers and traded the Giants that same day. Tarkenton drafted by and played for the Vikings for several years before he had enough of Norm Van Brocklin, even though Van Brocklin was fired and was traded to the New York Giants. Giants later traded him back. I'd take Fran. I don't think Fran was the reason why the Vikings never won a Super Bowl. Now, was Eli Manning the reason why the Giants won two? He may not have been the reason they got there, but he has two of the greatest plays we've ever seen in Super Bowl history. The helmet catch by Tyreek or David Tyree and the throw Mario Manningham along the sideline. Devin McCourty talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That throw that kept the drive going that ended up winning the game for the Giants or go back and look at the box score. It was a key throw in a key moment. And that was like a moment that you took notice of the reality that the Giants were going to win that game. So I'd still take Fran Targeton in large part because I was a huge Fran Targeton fan when I was a kid. Sam Eichenlob, a.k.a. Florio's paperclip. <laughs> How often do teams call on superstar or untouchable players that aren't publicly known to be available for trade? I remember a few years back, Washington was rumored to offer something like five first-round picks from a Mahomes. Can you recall any rumors like that from the past or present? Let's get it straight what the commanders did. The commanders feel like they never got a fair chance to trade for Matthew Stafford, and for good reason. They didn't get a fair chance to trade for Matthew Stafford because it was an inside job between the Lions and the Rams, and that's fine. That's fine. There's no requirement if you're going to trade somebody to call every team and say, give me your best offer. The Rams wanted to unload Jared Goff's contract, so they saw an opportunity with a GM who had just left the Rams to become the general manager of the Lions, they saw an opportunity to do a swap, Stafford for Goff, and you can tuck a first-round pick in there to get Goff's contract off the books without it being obvious. If they would have traded Stafford anywhere else, Detroit would have done it. The Rams would have had to do a Brock Osweiler-type deal where they give somebody a first-round pick to take Jared Goff's contract. It just would have been embarrassing. It would have been a bad look. It worked out perfectly for the Rams and Lions. So the commanders didn't get a shot. So the next year, what they did was they called every team. They wanted there to be no doubt We've called every team in search of a potential quarterback, including the Chiefs. And people drag them for it. It's like, hey, if you want to be able to say to yourself and everyone else, we, we tried everything we could to address our quarterback position. That's the way you do it. So I don't think they ever offered five first-round picks. It was just they called every team, including the Chiefs, to see if their starter was available. And I understand I said this recently about the report from Albert Breer of SI.com that a couple of teams talked to the Bears about Justin Fields at the Senior Bowl. That's what teams do. 
That's what you do. You constantly have these conversations. The players on a team, on any team, are just interchangeable parts in a broader football machine, and they're inevitably going to be removed and replaced with other parts. And there's always a market potentially for those parts, or at least there's a curiosity as to what the market would be for those parts. You're not doing your job as a general manager if you're not constantly in contact with other general managers talking about what it would take. Hey, so what do you think about this guy? What do you, what do you know? And, and you have these conversations, even if it never goes anywhere, because you don't want to miss the opportunity. You know, it's like looking for a house. Sometimes you get lucky, like we did with the house I'm sitting in now. We found out that the house might be available before it was on the market. So we were able to do a deal to buy the house without it being on the market, without having to worry about the real estate commissions, without having to worry about anybody else trying to buy it and getting into a bidding war. We were able to swoop in and do the deal before it was widely known. We, we got lucky. You make your luck as an NFL executive by being plugged into the network to know when these opportunities are going to arise, when you're going to be able to buy a house before it goes on the market. That's really what they're trying to do. That's why they're having these conversations. You want to be aware of that opportunity to buy a house before the house is on the market because you got a chance to do a better deal if you have a motivated seller and you're ready to move. And it's easy and it's simple and it's... And it's quick. That's why these conversations happen all the time. NFL leads. Now that the season is over, I am rewatching The Sopranos as it is the greatest show ever created. If you could have played a character on the show and if you were imbued with acting skills somewhat north of Gronk, it's a very low bar. Who would you play? I can see you as a mean Richie April or Phil Leotardo. You know, that's a great question, and I say that not just to buy time because I really don't know the answer. I really don't know. I would have wanted my own character. I would have wanted to create my own story. I would have wanted to find a way to fit into the overall experience and arc of Tony Soprano. I would have wanted to be the guy in the members-only jacket that puts the bullet in his head after the, the screen goes dark. I don't know. All right, good question, though. And I haven't watched it in a long time. I don't know that it's the greatest show ever. Maybe it's the greatest of its genre, but I don't know. I still like, uh, I still like Seinfeld, uh, and I still watch Seinfeld all the time. Speaking of TV, Swole, the real Swole Pez, I might have gotten that wrong. I'm doing the best I can. Just finished Better Call Saul. I remember you talking about watching the finale years ago. Based on your past career as a lawyer, how close is the show to the real thing on the lawyer's side? I don't recall while watching it ever being frustrated that any of the dialogue or the storylines were unrealistic. A lot of the stuff that Kim does when she's working for HHM, reviewing documents deep into the night. I've lived that. That is part of it. Some of the office politics were pitch perfect. Now they've created very unique and memorable characters that get thrust into these otherwise ordinary situations. But I never recall anything about it seeming incorrect. It's over the top. It's farcical at times, the way that 
Saul Goodman, a.k.a. Jimmy McGill, operated. But a lot of the stuff you can tell, and I don't know anything about Vince Gilligan's background, but somebody involved in the process of writing that show had practiced law and had a knack for making sure that it was all kind of pitch perfect, even if it if it involves storylines and characters who were way over the top. All right. I probably need to wrap this up. I'm just looking for something else. One more to wrap up with. Let's see. Let's see. Rigor mortis. I was in awe watching Sims, Peter King, and you talking to me about football from the Super Bowl, and it made me think of Mount Rushmore. I have been reading King since I was a kid in the 80s. Who would you add to round out the top four, alive or dead? I was thinking Mad Dog. Look, I'd really need to think about that. Mount Rushmore of like NFL coverage all time. I think it all depends upon your own personal framework the people that you read, the people that you were influenced by, the people that you grew up waiting to hear whatever they said next. For me, it starts with Brent Musburger. If you haven't seen You Are Looking Live, the documentary that premiered on Super Bowl Sunday, it's been on CBS Sports Network a couple of times. I've seen it. It's great. Brent Musburger was the first person who kind of took my hand and carried me through what it meant to be a pro football fan. So I think it's going to vary based upon what your own individual experiences are and what you read, what you consumed, what influenced you, especially in your formative years as a football fan. Good Lord. You know, I'm really not looking for another question that becomes a recurring theme, but Logan Mape says, would you rather find $5 on the ground or $100 in a public toilet. Now, at the risk of being graphic, and this will be the last question, and I'm trying not to spoil my appetite for lunch, I would need to know more about the public toilet. (laughs) I I would need more information about the contents and other things of the public toilet. The placement of the $100 bill, You know, there's a lot of, like, areas on a public toilet. So I don't know without more information as to how I would go about retrieving the $100. Andy Dufresne went through 500 yards of the foulest smelling shit to break out of prison. I don't know for 100 bucks how much of it I want to stick my hand through, frankly. And on that happy note... Enjoy your lunch or your dinner or your breakfast. Thanks again to our guest today and uh, Matthew Hamachek of the the Dynasty. And we're going to sign off. Maybe we'll do one tomorrow to wrap up the week. Maybe we won't. Either way, Monday, PFT Live returns. Tuesday, we're in Indianapolis. Wednesday, we're in Indianapolis. Thursday, we're in Indianapolis. And next Friday, we also will be there talking to coaches, general managers, and prospects as the 2024 offseason begins to hit overdrive. It's coming next week. Thanks again for some of your time. Check us out around the clock at ProFootballTalk.com and see you again tomorrow.
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.